We're jumping into uh, John chapter 4, verse 4 through 29 today. And really, the sermon is in the passage. Um, and it is a, it's a fantastic story. Most of us um, would admit that romance or our romantic life is a big part of us. Um, the rest of us are lying. Uh, for the most part, uh, romance and relationships is a very big part of who we are. Uh, some of us have the gift, right? So you grew up in church, you know what that means. Uh, you just, you're okay. You can just hang out and you're, you're cool with that. And, and that's about like um, a small slice of us. But for, for a lot of us, this is a big part of who we are. As a matter of fact, uh, in the church, this is something that we do struggle with, right? So, so for those of you guys who grew up in the church, you know that as a person who is uh, finding a mate, even as married people, you can attest to this, but it, it, can, it can be an anxious time uh, in, your, in your life. For those of you guys who know you're just not going to get married, you're, you're kind of surpassed that. But for, for a lot of us, that's a big part of our anxiety. And I would argue this, that in our city, I think sex relationships is probably our number one issue. Right? You don't have to agree with me on that. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think it's our number one issue. Uh, there's a guy named Ernest Becker. Um, he wrote a book called um, The Denial of Death. It's a fantastic book. He's an atheist, um, and he wrote this book. It's a Pulitzer Prize winner. He lived out in Vancouver before he passed away. And in the book, he argues this, that um, uh, in, non, in, in traditional uh, society, religion explained meaning and purpose and life and all those things. In modern-day society, people don't turn to religion anymore. They turn to other things. And so his argument is that um, because they're turning to other things, where else do they find meaning and purpose, and how do they plug into the big picture? All right? If it's not God, then who is it? Right? And so this is what Ernest Becker writes. And it's a bit lengthy, but I'm going I'm to read through it. It says, if he, man, no longer had God, how was he to do this? Bigger purpose, plug into that. One of the first ways that occurred to him as rank and ranks a philosopher that he's appealing to was the romantic solution. He fixed his urge to cosmic heroism onto another person in the form of a love object. The self-glorification that he needed in his innermost nature, he now looked for in the love partner. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which he fulfills one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. Spirituality, which once referred to another dimension of things, is now brought down to this earth and given form in another individual human being. Salvation itself is no longer referred to in abstraction like God, but can be sought in the beatification, and that just means kind of like the, the, the lifting up of the other. All right. What's Becker saying? He's saying this, because we're not singing love songs to God anymore, we sing it to, to our romantic interests. When you stop singing songs about God, you're going to naturally sing songs to other people, about your loved ones. And uh, I was trying to find a really good example of this, and I found a Bee Gees song. Yeah, just a fantastic example. And uh, this is from How Deep Is Your Love. All right. Which I love this song. Uh, not after these lines, though. I believe in you. You know the door of my very soul. You're the light of my deepest, darkest hour. You're my savior when I fall. And you may not think I care for you when you know down inside that I really do. It's me you need to show. Oh, that's when we sing that part. Yeah. When we stop singing about God, we begin singing to a lesser God. And that's typically a romantic relationship. Today we're dealing with singleness. And I think the scripture passage today is not so much about singles. So I don't want you married people to zone out. 
Um, but we are going to talk about an issue that's introduced to us in singleness. And we actually carry it on with us into our married life. Did you catch that? We're going to talk about this issue that we actually are introduced and exposed to in our single life. And we actually carry it on with us into our married life. And that's the issue of understanding loneliness. And so um, usually when we talk about loneliness, here are some of the questions that are brought up. Like, um, how long do I have to wait? Right? Or am I good enough? Um, or when do I call it quits? Uh, or should I just settle? And so um, I, I want to make this statement. I think it's worth you writing it down or kind of texting it to yourself. But understanding loneliness can put you leaps and bounds above even those who have been in long-lasting relationships, especially those in unfulfilling ones. Understanding loneliness can put you leaps and bounds above those who are in, even those who are in long-lasting relationships, especially those in unfulfilling ones. And so from the text this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to observe three things about the Samaritan woman that's going to help us uh, in our study. And number one is this, that the dry, we're going to observe the dry well of her past. Two, we're going to talk about that sex couldn't satisfy her thirst. And then three, her discovery of a new well. All right? The dry well couldn't, or the dry well of her past, sex couldn't satisfy her thirst and her discovery of a new well. So number one, the dry well of her past. Uh, a lot of Bible scholars, as, you, uh, as they uh, have kind of comment, made commentary on this passage, uh, they make note that she is actually going to draw water uh, at high noon. All right? And so this is out of verse 6. Um, and they ask why. Why is she out? You know, most responsible women would be there in the morning because they got to fetch water for the family. Okay. And so a lot of people argue, well, this is obviously attached to the stigma of who she is. She has a bad reputation. She has been with five men, and the sixth one that she's with right now, she has no plans of getting married to, according to verse 18. Right? She's got a pretty bad reputation. And so there's a, few, there's a few reasons why she may have a bad reputation. These are just my hypotheses. It's not in the text. But number one, uh, maybe she's got a really bad dating life. Right? So maybe that's why she's got a bad reputation. But that's probably not possible because that dating didn't really exist in its modern form until about 200 years ago. Um, and so number two, she's been whittled five times. And literally, she's trying to save the sixth guy's life. Right? She's not going to marry him. She doesn't want to kill him. Uh, number three is this. Um, she's the town whore. Um, enough explanation. And then number four is that she's been committing adultery with these other five men. And she's trying to avoid their wives and their family. We don't, we don't know why she's uh, living this lifestyle. But we do know that this lifestyle is leaving her lonely, where she has to isolate herself from the rest of people. And I want to make this observation that in loneliness, we often have feelings of low self-worth. And when you have feelings of low self-worth, you often make decisions that are regrettable. Does it happen all the time? But in loneliness, you feel low self-worth. And when you have low self-worth feelings, you often, often make regrettable decisions. So we don't know why she's promiscuous. We don't know why she's got this lifestyle. But it's interesting, if you, if you study the first of the New Testament uh, times, <laughs> women who turned to prostitution typically were women who were divorcees or they were orphan daughters. They had no other way to make money for themselves. And so they sold their bodies. And that's how. So think about this. What if her promiscuity came from a broken family home? Right? Could it be that her promiscuity, her isolation was a product of a broken family? 
Uh, I found a, a UNICEF report uh, that was made back in 2007. It was on the US, Canada, and Great Britain. And um, it talks about the devastating effects on young children who have absent fathers, all right? And so there were 12 effects that they had listed. I'm gonna um, read through three of them. The first one was this, that children have a diminished self-concept. Um, and so children consistently report that they feel abandoned when their fathers aren't involved in their lives. Uh, they struggle with their emotions and they have episodic bouts of self-loathing, right? Uh, number two is promiscuity and teen pregnancy. So if, if father presence isn't around, um, kids are more likely to have kids before the age of 16. And notice the, the last part of this, it says that girls manifest an object hunger for males, and in experiencing the emotional loss of their fathers, egocentrically as a rejection of them, they become susceptible to exploitation by adult men. Uh, the third thing, um, effect, is exploitation and abuse, um, in that uh, fatherless children are at greater risk of suffering physical, emotional, sexual abuse, uh, five times more likely to have experienced um, that kind of abuse and more likely to, <coughs> to die earlier. And number four is future relationships. Father absent children tend to enter into partnerships earlier and they are likely to get divorced or dissolve cohabiting unions and are more likely to have children outside of uh, marriage or any other partnership. Right? I'm not saying that a broken family was the reason why the Samaritan woman had a promiscuous past and was lonely. I am saying that in modern day times, it explains a lot why we have promiscuous past and loneliness. I think it has a lot to do with our, our family life, right? Our loneliness is often a result of dysfunction in family upbringing, all right? Um, so I'm not blaming mom and dad. Right? It's not mom and dad's fault. But I think in understanding this, you, you begin to see that the devil's in the details, all right? Like, you can have a great father who's very stable, but the devil's in the details, really. All right? And so, if you ever ask yourself, I'm going to do this all the time, um, why am I still controlling? Um, why am I unable to commit? Why do I have a hard time, like, saving money? Why can't I you know, keep a stable job? Why, uh, why aren't I able to approach people in conversation and, and feel like I can just have a good time? Why can't I just adjust and, and really um, just have a good time around people. Um, it's not mom and dad's fault, right? So this is not license to blame mom and dad. But there, there's a very real sense in which in dysfunction, if we're not taught to deal with our loneliness, if we're not taught to deal with our low self-worth, then it leads to bad decision-making. And mom and dad primarily they provide that role for us, all right? Um, so right away, I can hear people objecting already, like this is Dr. Phil Mongevo type stuff, uh, blame your mom and your dad. Um, and and that, that really isn't, that, that's really not what I'm, what I'm trying to suggest, right? Uh, so if you follow the logic, it's, okay, well, if dad was bad, then let God replace you, um, or let God replace dad in your life and everything should be better. But for a lot of us, you know that that logic hasn't worked. Right? So, like, let me just say the thing that a lot of people don't have the courage to say. And a lot of times it's this, that I've tried God to replace that void in my heart and it just isn't working. Right? 
And so if that's the place that you find yourself in, if that's the place that you, you're, you're constantly praying, you're young, you're, you're saying to God, God, I just wish that you would fill that place in my heart. Um, I think you're in a good place. You're in a good place. You're, you're sitting on the same bench that the Samaritan woman is sitting on in this story. When I make a statement, I just want you to tuck it away, and we're going to come back to it towards the end. <clears throat> um, loneliness is a fathering issue, and I, I apologize if you think I'm being too gender-specific. Fathering has a, a function that mothering doesn't, doesn't uh, always meet. Loneliness is a fathering issue. As a child, if you've never felt the intense intimacy and nurture of a father's love, it's hard to have a standard to compare other forms of intimacy to. So if a young son has never felt the love of his father, he's going to spend the rest of his life trying to, to find that. If a young girl has never heard her father's words of approval and affirmation, she will look for it in everybody else that she's in contrary. All right? And so that's, that's an argument that I'm making. It's a strong one. We'll see what happens. All right? Um, right away, I, wanna, <clears throat> I also want to share that um, I, I got married at 19. And so some of you single folks um, may think that I have no credibility in terms of talking about singleness. <clears throat> and I want to share this with you. Um, pastoring in some ways is very much like the single life. <laughs> um, you may not buy this, but uh, it is. For instance, we often feel loneliness. Uh, even with an incredible wife, uh, pastors often feel lonely. And number two, we often feel a lot of pressure to take the next step. Like, I want to do it, but I just don't know how to do it. Uh, we get jealous of others easily and get discouraged by our lack of progress. Uh, we try to play up our strengths and cover up our weaknesses. Anybody? Just me and Mike. <laughs> this, this, this must be a pastor thing. <laughs> we romanticize in our head the perfect situation. We think that no one really understands us. I was a young adults pastor, and this is definitely, for, for about three years, I was a college and young adults pastor. People just don't understand my situation. So pastors, we say that a lot too. <laughs> and then number seven, I just felt like I should put this out there. It has nothing to do with singleness. We're just broken, tired all the time. <laughs> and we still have to be good friends to people. <laughs> so we have to do it, then you single people, you have to do it too. As a pastor, if I wallow in this, if I wallow in these seven things that I just rattled off, like, the temptation is to try to go to the next thing to get the quick fix, because it doesn't feel good to live in this, right? It doesn't feel good to live in this, in this, in this like, constant tension. And so you, you look for the, the next fix to kind of make you feel better. And in a dating, in a relationship world, that next fix, or the quick fix to make yourself feel better, oftentimes is sex. Not all the time, but oftentimes it's sex. It brings us to our second point. But in this story about the Samaritan woman, she found out that sex couldn't satisfy her thirst. If you read uh, verse 18 through 20, maybe uh, Curtis, we can give that up. There's actually an awkward transition from her conversation about her five husbands and her sixth one that she doesn't want to kill, um, to now talking about God, right? And so this is a really awkward transition that happens. I think that it, it happens because simultaneously those two realities exist in her head. Right? I'm trying to figure out my relationship over here, and I'm trying to figure out God. So number one, 
I don't know why I'm so lonely and promiscuous. And number two, God, if you're real, which, which one are you? Like, are you the Jewish God? Are you the Samaritan God? Are you the Muslim God? Are you the, um, you know, which God are you? And so I think these are simultaneous things that she's holding in her head <clears throat> in tension. And Jesus picks this out. Like, he picks this out way before the conversation begins to escalate. And he says, I, I know what your problem is. You have a thirst. You have a thirst problem. You're thirsty. And at its core, loneliness, it feels like a rejection for who you are. Right? And for the most part, you guys are in a room of like 80 people right now, so you may not feel that lonely. Okay, grand, right? But when you do feel lonely, what does it feel like? It feels like you're being rejected for who you are. Right? Uh, it's like an anguish. It's like a dryness. Um, that you know you have some worth, but nobody, nobody's given it to you. So uh, if you're like your type A personality like me, you're like waving people down. You're like flaunting yourself, and you're hoping that somebody would notice you, but nobody does. And it leaves, it kind of leaves you in that feeling, like you're just like, oh. like I tried, I tried to insert myself, and nobody noticed. It's a thirst. Loneliness is an indication for intimacy. You need something. You need attention. Loneliness is an emotion that engages what you believe about yourself and your situation. So what she couldn't find in God, she began to look for in a man. The joy that she didn't feel in her soul, she began to fill it up in her body. Right. So when God no longer seemed stable, she turned to a relationship. And I'm quoting Ernest Becker again. And if you read, you know, this this one chapter in Ernest Becker, um, fantastic perspective from a non-believer's um, worldview. But he says this, that if you don't have a God in heaven, in an invisible dimension that justifies the visible dimension, then what you take is what's nearest at hand, and you work out your problems on that. You begin to unload all of who you are to the person closest to you. And in a marriage relationship, this is, this is true. Like, like, I unload a lot of stuff onto Linda. Now she's a workhorse, so she can take it. All right. Not all women are as strong as Linda. So like I unload this stuff on her. It's, it's, and it, there's compulsive behaviors that only the people that are closest to us see, right? And one of the most compulsive behaviors that we have in relationships is sex and sex appeal. Right? One of, one of the most like, compulsive things that a, a couple can have between them, like I gotta have this, gotta have this, like, and guys, we, we work up our rituals, and so married men, Hey, help me out here. Like, Mary, man, we have rituals, right? Like, you start with the dishes, and then eventually, we, <laughs> now you know what I'm talking about, right? And so it's kind of this, this impulsive thing inside of us, and that's, that's how we validate that we have significance in the other person's eyes, right? And so um, there, there are three views of sex I just want to throw out there. We're not going to spend too much time on them. But the first view is the biblical view of sex, and this, what this means is this, that we are, every time you have sex, you're reenacting a covenant that you've made with somebody. You're saying to them, I'm giving to you my body, or I'm doing with my body what I've already done to you with my life. Okay? And so that's a biblical view of sex. Often it's about Christ in the church. It's about that painting that picture. The groom and the bride, Christ in the church. It's a very high view of sex. The platonic view of sex, this is based off of um, some of Plato's students, and he, he wrote about some of this in the Republic. Um, but uh, he uh, specifically says that sex is the idea that um, it's an instinct that we happen to have. 
and one which we need on occasion to gratify in order to secure the continuance of species. So I'm only having sex to have kids. Right? It's a burden. Um, and actually, St. Augustine, who was an early church father, he held this view primarily because he had a very promiscuous past. And then it, it switched over to kind of this really like, all right, if you really need to have kids, then you can have sex, right? Uh, and then there's a, a kind of romantic view, realist view of sex, which is, um, which I think is a, a fairly low view of sex, but it's probably the most dominant, all right? Um, and this is that sex is an appetite, that it needs to be fulfilled, um, that it's a personal need that has to be met. Uh, receiving pleasure is primary. It's based on attraction and stimulation. This is what the songs are written about. This is what sells perfume. This is what sells cars. This is what sells um, a trillion dollar industry in the world, right? based on sex. So um, I found an inter interesting quote. Um, I thought about not throwing this out there, but it just kind of provokes this view. Um, one pastor said this, that if you have this view of sex in mind, even in marriage, right, then every time you have sex, it's just like having mutual masturbation. I'm going to let you handle that one next week <laughs> when you talk about married people. Uh, so what we have in common with the Samaritan woman is this, um, that sex and sex appeal is our draw for intimacy. Like, we just want to be noticed. We just want to know that we are, we're desired. Right? We just want to know that we're attracted to, to somebody else. And when we, don't, when we don't receive it, we feel belittled. I was nervous when I was 18, I started losing my hair. Um, so I was like, I need to get married quick. <laughs> like, I just, I need, to, I need to put this thing to sleep. And we just need to work this out real quick. <laughs> and uh, I remember feeling those feelings of insecurity. Why? Because I thought, if, if, if I lose my hair, um, no one will find me attractive. And I'll never get married. And it sounds ridiculous, right? For so many people in our city, that's the way they live their life. I remember when I shared that with Linda, she, she laughed. That was her date at the time. And she laughed at that. But literally, it was a cause of anxiety. Which didn't happen. It didn't help the hair loss. Because if you're anxious and stressful, it increases the hair loss. Right? In a way, the chase of sex and romance, um, the, the chasing of sex and romance, is kind of like an addicting game. It's addictive. Um, I was reading this uh, online magazine from Urban Single Men. And I don't frequent it. Where you <laughs> But it came out last week, and uh, there's a staff writer, her name is G. Hooks, she's a female. And she wrote a piece uh, that said, don't be thirsty, be hard to impress. She's trying to give some insight to, to men about how women think. <laughs> and she said, we encounter a man, uh, when we encounter a man that doesn't fall for us, or anyone, so easily in the early stages, but is unusually hard to impress, it makes us feel like we have to step up our game. It makes us more intrigued by you, speaking of men, than we'd probably normally, normally be. A man being hard to impress brings a competitive side out of women. Feeling competitive is another common cause for a spike in our adrenaline. We're asking ourselves, did this dude seriously just pass all this goodness up? He must be working with something special that I wasn't really aware of upon first seeing him. <laughs> it creates a sense of suspense. It spikes our adrenaline. It subconsciously makes us want to impress you more. Is this woman addicted to sex? I, I don't know. Probably not. Maybe not. 
Is she right? Is her writing consistent with how addicts feel about their drink, their drug, and their porn? Absolutely. You see, it quickly goes from I got a man to like I'm not satisfied anymore with this man to I missed the thrill of the chase to now I'm back on the prowl. And in, in the drug world, we call that a junkie. In, um, uh, in, a, in a world of romance, we call that a player. In the identity world, we call that person lost. And so the Samaritan woman is sitting across from Jesus as lost as she could be. And she senses there's something godly about him. And that connects with her need for God in her life. And she says to him, you've got to know something about God. What does God think about me? And Jesus looks at her and he's he'd say, if, if you only knew who you were talking to, you would ask me to quench your thirst. If you only knew. I saw this video a documentary of this actress, Broadway actress, her name is uh, Elliot Ellsworth. And she um, lived a long life of just uh, multiple marriages, divorces, to the point where she knew there was something wrong with her. So she practiced therapy, Buddhism, um, she practiced uh, crystals, all these ways to kind of figure out what was going on inside of her. So she started dating this guy, and this guy started taking her to church, and they were, they were like, you know, very intimate. Uh, eventually he dumped her but she continued to, to go to church. And so and she was kind of struggling through this. And so after two years, after two years of going to church and hearing the Bible preached, this is what she says. She says, I began to hear the word, and I think that the turning point for me was this thing that you're feeling down inside of you that you can't get to. It has a name. And that name is sin. Sin isn't just our behaviors and our rebellion. Sin is this like false assignment of value and significance that we allow people to have when really only God can give you that validation. The lost person is surrounded by water and the ocean. And you can survive in the ocean for about seven days. But think, think about this. You, you see water all around you. There's water all around you. But you know you can't drink that water. Why? It's salt water. It'll make you more thirsty and eventually it'll kill you. Sin is the same way. There's such a strong thirst and such a strong gravitation towards it. But you know that the more you, you have it, the thirstier you become. The more that you have it, it'll lead to, to your death. I'm going to point out uh, three things that as, as single people, um, we often, uh, our sin begins to manifest itself in certain ways. And it's not always this way, but there's three things I want to point out, especially, um, you know, for those of us who are in the city for career, in the city for uh, kind of finding the next step in your life. There are three things that really um, I want to point out. Number one is a sense of interdependence, and that's this, that my perfect mate is out there, but I'm full of anxiety because I haven't found that person yet. Right? I'm full of anxiety 
That's an indication that your sin has given the best of you. I know my perfect mate is out there, and I'm, I'm full of anxiety because I can't find him. Number two is this, independence. I am my perfect mate. <laughs> so I'm no longer interested in marriage or commitment. And number three is this, isolation. I'm just all messed up. So I'm no good to anybody. And these are three ways in which our sin begins to manifest itself. The question is, where is the thirst? Where is the thirst that will quench this? So this is our third point. This is that her discovery of a new well. She discovered a new well. In, in verse 4, and Curtis, can you read on verse 4 real quick? Um, um, Jesus was very intentional about going through Samaria. And it actually says this in verse 4, that he had to go through Samaria. Okay? As a matter of fact, it was very uncommon for Jews to go through Samaria. So Jesus could have went around this province, but he, he had to go through, all right? He had to go through this. And so a couple of commentators have, have made a couple of suggestions. I don't buy it all, but it's, just, it's fun to think that he had to go through Samaria because he knew of this woman's reputation. He knew that every day at noon, this woman who is popular in her town for her services that she provides. This is probably news that would be widespread to travelers. If you want an easy fix, find the woman at the well. Jesus knew that if we have to make it in Samaria at this time, I'll get an appointment that I have to make. Right? It says, verse 1, that Jesus had to be in Samaria. Jesus was very intentional about meeting her that day because he, he had living water to give to her. Uh, I read one, one pastor who said this, that this is the prodigal son story of John. It's just that it's the prodigal daughter. But unlike the, unlike the story of the prodigal uh, son, like in this case, God does reach out to the son or to the daughter in the place where she is in her mess. And so through Jesus, God the Father is saying, this to his daughter. I'm not leaving you alone. I've, I've, I've made the step towards you. I am intentional about engaging you in your situation. Right. Remember what I said about absent fathers. The story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman is this, that God the Father is not a dead being. That he's not the kind of dad that is going to not teach you how to deal with your sins, your loneliness, your desires, your anxieties. That is not the God of the Bible. That's not the God that Jesus was representing to the Samaritan woman that day. <clears throat> Jesus was the ultimate evangelist when he was meeting with his gal. He saw her in her shame. He saw her in her cover up. He saw her in her embarrassment. And he said, she's thirsty. She's thirsty. In, in the Nativity story, uh, the movie about Mary and Joseph, the, the parents of Jesus. Have you guys seen this movie? It's like kind of a Christmas story. And there's this fantastic scene when Mary comes out and she's pregnant, right? She's like this 15-year-old girl. She's pregnant and the, the town looks at her and they just, they're just judging her. And so they have a conference in the house. And Joseph is just, he's just like, he feels this pressure, he's angry, he's like, he's embarrassed, like, Mary, how can you do this to me, right? That's just kind of how he feels. And there comes a point when Joseph looks over to Mary, and he says, Mary, 
I will not accuse you. In Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman, he's saying the same to, to her, I will not accuse you. That I do not accuse you. The, the gospel says this, that even though in the midst of our sin, even though we deserve to be accused and to take responsibility for it, that another one comes and takes that place. And not only does he, Jesus, take our place, but in taking our place, he actually fulfills and gives us the love that each one of us longs for. I'm not saying single people are sinful when you're lonely and when you're desperate. That, that's not the message. But the inordinate desire to be approved and to be loved, even in marriage, it's just an idolatry that Jesus came to get rid of. That Jesus came to get rid of. The gospel for women, all right, you can't like make it gender specific, but I thought it'd be fun to kind of uh, try. <laughs> the gospel for women, in a way, uh, and I'm, I'm, I understand, I'm overly stereotyping it, so just give you some grace here. But the only way for a girl to feel completely healed when a, when a bad man looks at her with disapproval and rejection is for another man who is even better to look at her with longing and approving eyes. Who can say to her, you're beautiful, I see your gifts and your flaws and your dreams, and I can be the one to complete you. And I have nothing sexual towards you. When a girl has God's approval in this way, their standards aren't so low that they'll compromise their identity. But their standards aren't so high. Their standards aren't so high that they can't look at the men around them and know that God's redeeming these men around them. What, what do I want to do with that application for you single people? This is the application. All right. um, don't make your standards so low that you compromise yourself. Don't make it so high that you're rotting off the guy that you see every week when you come to church or that you see at work. If, if you have the approval of God, your standards don't have to be that one. Right? Uh, the gospel for men, you're thinking, oh, that, that's, that's good for you, you women. Men, men, we don't think that way. I mean, we, we don't think standards. Right? Men don't think. That's part of our problem. Right? As a matter of fact, Archibald Hart, he's a psychologist, he affirms that men don't think. He says that uh, men, we have to act out what we feel. We have angry outbursts. We become easily annoyed. These are the forms of men's depression and loneliness, different from women crying. And let me ask you, what about David and Jonathan in the Bible? What about that relationship between man and man that is so, like, scary for us men? That there's a, there's a kind of relationship that men do men. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 18 that David, Jonathan loved David as if he loved his own soul. There's a kind of masculine relationship, male-male relationship, that can be so fulfilling in our hearts, in our lives. John writes that he slept on the bosom of Jesus. And in sleeping on Jesus' chest, he felt the approval of the God of the universe. And none of that intimacy, none of that intimacy was homoerotic. The only way for a guy to feel completely whole uh, is when it looks like uh, uh, there's no one who is interested in him. 
but literally he feels safe and he's not intimidated by laying his bosom on the chest of another. I want to end with this. Ben, I'm going to invite you up to lead us in as we go into to communion. Jesus accomplished quite a bit as a single person. Right? That's, uh, if you've grown up in church, that's kind of a big Trump statement. Like, stop complaining about being single. Jesus was single. Right? And so, um, uh, I won't go But Jesus accomplished all these things as a single person. He accomplished it all. He did it in a way in which his approval, his longing, his desires. Did Jesus struggle with temptation? Absolutely, the Bible says. He's experienced every temptation known to man, but he never sinned. Jesus knows every single thing that married people experience. But the Bible also talks about him as a groom of the church, his bride. He knows everything that married people struggle with. So I want to invite us this morning as we move into the Lord's table. Um, a few things. One is I want you to have the courage to stop talking about yourself as the victim. To stop talking about yourself as somebody who's been victimized in a family situation. I want to point those out because God wants to follow you. But I also want you to have a sense in which you can acknowledge what you experience is sin. And sin oftentimes has an isolating effect. And you begin to focus on yourself. And you begin to feel anxiety. You begin to feel if you would ever measure up. And if you can call it sin for what it is, then there's a solution. And the solution is this, that Jesus has come to take away our sin. Can we close our eyes and pray for us? God, teach us to drink from the well of Jesus. Teach us to quench our thirst on Jesus. To receive the approval of the Father through Jesus, who you are and what you've done. You were tempted in every way as a single person, yet you never sinned. God, even you, Jesus, you felt loneliness in your body. And even then, it never led you to make regrettable decisions. And I just pray that that same power that you had would come upon uh, the people in our church here. God, I want to pray these words over our congregation to Trinity Life. Because some of us, Lord, we, we're, we are in the season of life where we are a resource to other people. I'm going to pray this over you guys. And this is what Jesus said to his disciples. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. And even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the same. One sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work. And you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And God is sending us, regardless of our marital status, into a harvest field training life. We have an obligation in our city to be salt and light. And in our sex and in our relationship, that speaks volumes, that attracts. And God, would you give us that? Would you allow us to be people that practice that? I want to invite you this morning as we take the Lord's Supper, that I'm going to give you the same saying that the Samaritan woman said to her village, she said, come, come see the man who told me everything I did could be the Christ.